Hello everyone and welcome to the Debug Log, the podcast about game development. My name is Eduardo Castillo Fernandez and yes, in this episode 57, the show is all mine. However, I'm not the only one in the show today. I had the pleasure to interview Dale Flowers, he's the lead programmer on Paladins at Hi-Res Studios and we're going to be talking about the role of a system developer in a game development studio, the differences between system developer and a gameplay programmer, and what are the skills that you have to have to be a system developer. Of course, we will be talking about Paladins, and toward the end of the show, we will give you some tips and techniques that you can use in your game development process to improve it. So without further ado, here it is, the Debug Log, episode 57. to the debug log. Today I'm the only one um, team member in, in this episode, so uh, but don't worry, I have a special guest, it's Dale Flowers, is the lead programmer on Paladins at High Res Studios, the best studio here in Georgia, so sorry for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> He's, uh, uh, he was a senior programmer at 3Y Interactive, he has worked in Thrust Interactive, Top Hat Studios, and at some point he was owner and technical director of Greater Good Games. So he's a really cool guy with a bunch of experience. So I, I really appreciate um, you taking your time from your Saturday, Dale, to, to be here in the show with me. Thank you very much and welcome to the show. Thanks, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's really an honor to be a part of this. Um, so in addition to the introduction, would you like to add some like something uh, to your background, how you started in games? Yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, so my, my actual background, uh, I'm actually a, a self-taught uh, developer. Um, so back in, when I was uh, 12 years old, 11, 12, I started getting into uh, Visual Basic, making uh, what we called AOL proggies, um, which were basically a way to do things that were um, illegal uh, sharing software, <laughs> illegal software. Um, and I didn't care about the illegal software part so much. Um, and, you know, kind of at the time, it was in a gray area of how illegal it really was. Uh, it's pretty well defined at this point. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know any better. Um, and I just had fun with uh, doing string manipulation and things like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Visual Basic, uh, I would never suggest anybody start there. Uh, making the transition from there to a real programming language is, is kind of difficult. Um, it gives you some bad ideas about the way things work. Um, but then I jumped to C++ uh, when I was like 15, 16, and um, because I you know, wanted to make games and I figured out from Google searches and everything, maybe actually Google didn't exist yet, maybe it was Yahoo searches, um, to uh, you know, finding, oh, games are not made in Visual Basic, games are made in C++. Um, and uh, I had a real tough time transitioning to that, um, but um, over the next few years, uh, got into it and um, met some people and got lucky and got uh, a contract through one of those people um, and just did, some, did remote contracting for a game that, as far as I know, never saw the light of day. Um, but uh, that was that was the real start, you know, and then just got lucky and got a, a break again off of knowing people and working with people. Um, 
you know, in there, I worked for a company for free for three or four months, um, and, uh, just, you know, proved myself to them. And so when they got to the point that they could start paying people, they started paying me and one other person and the other six people, uh, basically got let go at that point. Man, you have to do crazy things to start in this business. Oh my god! That's exactly the point. Is, you know, <laughs> they talk about going and doing QA for a little bit, and then you just like work extra hours with programmers. Um, and and I absolutely suggest that uh, it's really hard to get your foot in the door, but if you're good and dedicated and hardworking, um, then once you get your foot in the door, you'll never have to step back outside of it if you don't want to. Um, yeah. It's a it's a family thing, right? The the passion, the dedication, everybody appreciates that and feeds off of that. And as long as that fire doesn't die, then then you're set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you started super young. Like I started like in this not even game development, programming, like at the eighteen and I was like you when you said, Oh, games are made in C. Yeah, I had the same question when I was in the university. I was like Man, what people used to make games? And because uh, I was uh, using um, XNA before, yeah. and uh, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is not with this. And then someone told me about Unity. I was like, oh, okay, okay, this is more acceptable. And I started um, hearing about some games like um, Angry Birds and some others that were made in Unity. I was like, oh, okay, okay. I'm in the real world now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Unity back, back when I started uh, didn't didn't exist or at least uh, I hadn't really heard of it there weren't paying companies that were working in it um, C sharp wasn't really uh, a professional option but you know as a hobbyist uh, that's you know that's a real quick and easy way going through unity is a quick and easy way to get in get some uh, understanding of game development um, you know and even game architecture and you know it, It does a it does a real good job of being like a framework where I started with like straight Win32. <laughs> uh, you know, I had to create my own OpenGL context and start rendering quads and loading my own textures and yeah, um, hardcore. Oh yeah, you know, and, and I'm like, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't give that up for the world, right? Uh, I actually I'm mentoring somebody right now and and I'm just trying to get him to to be able to do that same kind of thing to. Uh, Because you know we're a dying breed, the uh, your average your average game programmer doesn't need to know all that stuff, um, but there's there's a core that's going to have to forever exist, even though you know it's dwindling in numbers and getting smaller, and people are you know the people that really have that knowledge are getting into retirement age at this point. Um, you know there's there has to be that knowledge share that has to that has to carry on because somebody's got to build that core like somebody has to build unity somebody has to build unreal uh, yeah. all those game engines but that's that's what it's really going to is that everybody uses a game engine um when i was when i was first getting into it everybody was writing their own game engine uh every every company nobody was using somebody else's tech um you know and uh i mean some people are using like id tech because it was open source right you get into the half-life thing uh, yeah yeah But uh, but generally everybody was writing their own tech, um, and nowadays nobody writes their own tech. You know, you have the five big engine developers, and that's it. Mm. I don't know if it's five. I'm just throwing out a guess. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Oh man, I'm I'm super glad that you mentioned that you're mentoring someone else who's like 
pass the knowledge because that's um, what we're trying to do here with the podcast. Like there, we notice that there are a bunch of people that are trying to get in the game development industry or are just starting and have no clue what to do or how to finish the games. So we're doing our best here and interviewing people like you to share uh, your experiences and hopefully it will resonate with our, our audience. So to go into the topic of the episode, um, guys, we're going to talk about uh, system developers and uh, what they do in a game development studio. So Dale, tell us about what a system developer is um, and what's their job in, in the studio. Yeah, so um, a, a systems developer versus really like a, a gameplay developer, um, the, the systems developer is more so building all the communication with some sort of back end where you're doing where the actual persistence lies. Um, so for uh, a free-to-play game, you, you have to have that. You have to have that persistence. Something has to keep track of what the person has actually purchased. Um, and when you're dealing with like mobile and you know Apple will store that for you and Google will store that for you, um, even Steam, you can get Steam to store that for you. But um, for high-res, we have our own standalone system and we want all of the other platforms to utilize the same thing. Um, so even even though Steam can store that data for us, we still, as uh, you know, our system engineers, um, store that data into that same persistence that people use when they're not using Steam. Um, so in the case of Paladins, the fact that you've purchased cards or skins, um, you know, which is a shared technology that Smite uses, the, the skins. Um, and so consequently, uh, the majority of our systems programmers actually end up on what we call our platform team. Um, which are the people building that core technology that is shared across multiple games. Um, but yeah, it's a, you know, it's really about the, rather than building the new god or champion um, and figuring out what their kit looks like, um, it can be, you know, building the uh, storage that where everybody configures those champions and configures those gods um, where that data is actually stored so that designers can access it. Basically, you know, like tools is an aspect of systems programmers as well. Um, so, you know, it's, you end up touching a lot more technologies than just the Unreal Engine at Hi-Rez or just Unity. Um, you, uh, you have to have an understanding of SQL and of, you know, straight TCP networks, uh, you know, just pushing packets across versus using Unreal Replication or using something like Photon. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting challenge to me. So it's, it's, this is curious. It's more like, uh, because for what you're saying, it looks similar to a, like a .NET developer, for example, just to use the .NET, um, where you're like an intermediate layer between the engine and uh, your game. So all the systems in the middle, all that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the idea um, is, um, I mean, essentially, if, if you really think about it, it's, it's everything that's not gameplay. Um, that's, that's really where we have that breakdown. Um, and you know, consequently, the the systems there there are systems engineers that do end up on the game. Only a select few of them, 
Um, and what they're mostly doing is actually tying the user interface to the to that backend. Um, so they're they're doing kind of like easier systems development, right? Like um, you know, and to a lot of people, the boring side of it, uh, dealing with the the user interaction aspect of it. Um, but you still have to you have to have that full understanding to be able to do it effectively of where um, where you're pulling data from and where you're pushing data to when those people are navigating around the U- the UI and you know purchasing this and changing their kit on, they're changing their loadout on something um, you know that's uh, that's our card system right we call them loadouts um, so that kind of uh, that kind of interaction you know the the gameplay guys handle what those cards turn into. When you get into the game, you know what they actually signify, but the systems guys uh, store. Oh, these are the five cards that they have selected um, when they when they choose this particular loadout versus that one. And you totally teleported me like three years ago when I was working in a um, consulting company as a .NET developer. I was doing um, like back end uh, mostly. Uh, I did a little bit of front end, but mostly back end, and uh, it sounds super similar to what you're saying. Uh, all just uh, the store procedures and SQL server queries, and making sure that everything goes to the right place in the in the user interface, and you're pulling the right information when the the client clicks the the button. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and that's you know we're a high res is is lucky that that we're large enough that. Um, I don't have to be a SQL expert. Um, I just need to be able to do some basic SQL, and then we have a team of SQL experts that go through and optimize uh, everything that that we write. Um, essentially, really, the way that it really works is we write the one that sits in our development environment, um, but then we give it to them to put it into the actual, um, you know, what will actually make it out to live. Um, that way, they can optimize it on the way. Um, some of their SQL queries are insane. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know. can I can read them, but I could never write them. You know. Yeah. So, Dale, how's the daily job of a system programmer? Like, what are the challenges? Do they have to? I guess they don't have to interact with uh, artists or anything like that, or they do. Uh, no, generally they do not. That's that's kind of that abstraction, right? What they they are dealing with other programmers. Um, you know, and the um, particularly if you're on that platform team, um, you're you're pretty much never working with artists or designers directly. Um, you're working with programmers who have already worked with the artists and designers to understand what's needed. Um, it's a little you get into a gray area a little bit when you are a systems engineer that's on the games. Um, for one, you have a UI designer that you have to work with, of course. Um, but you also do have to understand at that point what the designers want out of the out of the systems, right? What their expectations are of, of how things will interact. Um, but generally, you don't have to work with the three D artists, uh, the people that make the end game content. That's that's usually not uh, something that's uh, covered under a systems programmer. Gotcha. So. Since you have to make like the system that is gonna go that to work and be using in different games, uh, 
I mean, that's a lot of pressure right there <laughs> because you have to make sure that it works perfectly. It's not something like, yeah, this character is gonna have a bug and it's gonna disappear if you click something. It could break the whole game, right? Oh, it, I, absolutely. Um, and you know, and the, it still happens even with some of our most experienced developers. Um, and consequently, when when you are one of those platform systems developers, uh, you are generally uh, those are very senior people and if they're not senior they are very closely guided by a senior developer um typically i wouldn't i would say that um a systems uh engineer is not something that you come out of college and go straight into it's a uh, it's more something that you um you go in and you, and you do gameplay and then you kind of get interested in the stuff that's going underneath there and you kind of expand your knowledge until you get to the point where um, there's that faith, uh, you know, for you to do the, the systems engineer. You really have to, like, prove yourself to, a, you know, something to aspire to um, versus something that you just come out of school and you have the strong enough understanding of how all the pieces work and how to support multiple games at once. Um, I, I'd be very surprised if there are very many people that are actually capable of that straight out of school. Um, but, but yeah, if that's, you know, if it's something that people want to do, you know, get a few years in the industry and, uh, it'll become clear to you, to, to each person, whether or not that's actually something they want to do. Uh, because, you know, as they work with the people and see what they're doing and, you know, they, they get, exposed to these other technologies it either intrigues you or it doesn't and if it doesn't intrigue you you shouldn't you shouldn't force yourself into it because as you said it's it is a more stressful situation to be in than just being you know just directly working on the gameplay itself yeah i guess someone that comes from uh another like a software developer uh job or field um, just in straight computer science, not uh, that someone that studied game design in school would get more interested in this type of job, right? Yeah, they're, they're definitely uh, certainly more uh, qualified to, to do it in the sense that they've been exposed to the other technologies and cross-technology interaction. Um, you know, they've typically in, in business applications, you do end up with a SQL component and you know, you have to, you have to gain exposure to that. Um, you know, obviously you could just be pure front end. Um, but you know, even web developers end up knowing SQL. Um, you know, that's, I mean, that's the persistent layer, right? Like that's where the persistence is, is in that database. So, Mm -hmm. uh, that is absolutely key to, uh, getting into, uh, systems development. What do you guys use for, uh, like to develop all this C++? Yeah, we are. We actually are. Um, our whole studio tends to use C plus plus. Um, obviously, we we do have uh, the gameplay guys using a lot more Unreal script because we're still on Unreal Engine three. Um, but uh, should we ever make that transition to Unreal Engine four, then even our gameplay guys will just be working in C plus uh, plus. So we probably won't really abuse Blueprint too much. We'll probably, uh, you know, use utilize Blueprint Blueprint in the same way that. Uh, you currently utilize Kismet in the in UDK and, and Unreal Engine three, um, which is just you know more so the 
level designers end up end up using it um you know which means you have to build the systems for them for them to be able to use it it's not like uh kismet and is that straightforward that uh you know it, you can just expect a, a level designer who doesn't have like a logical mindset to just uh, be able to you know put perfect kismet nodes together and certainly less so with blueprint with how open it is um but yeah, it'd be interesting uh, if we ever make that transition to to see how many uh, developers in the studio uh, struggle a little bit more than they have been because Unreal Script does a lot of hand-holding that C++ yeah. does not. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the thing with C++. You have all their control, but now are you sure that you want that control? <laughs> because not exactly. everybody has yeah, the analytical mind to, to control it and they forget... Oh, I forgot to, to um, deallocate this memory. Oh, memory leak, boom, game crashes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, Dale, I'm curious, how, uh, is it easier or more difficult to, to test uh, like a system, if you're a system developer, or to test a game in general? Um, you know, so uh, from from the programming standpoint, just as the a programmer doing the um, QA aspect, the testing aspect, uh, mm -hmm. I would say it tends to be easier with systems because it's uh, it's more concrete, more more direct, right? You're doing you tend to do uh, smaller, more concise things, um, and you don't generally have to worry about. Uh, too much cross interaction with other systems, you know, you have a, you have a little bit of that, but it's not the same type of thing as uh, gameplay where, you know, you have to worry about, you know, the different interactions between all the different champions, for example. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, you go and you, you cast this thing and it's using this card, right? Or you shoot this way and it's, it's using this other card using this, you know, using all these modifiers and everything. And the, interactions thereof are limitless um where for systems the interactions are um you know bit bit more simplistic i guess they're they're a bit more known and edge cases are a bit more obvious um but from the actual qa side um a qa person would tell you the opposite because those systems um they're they're more black box right yeah they're not intuitive at all Exactly, where the game, I mean, everybody's used to playing games, it's, it's directly intuitive, even though there's a lot more things to test in there, it's, it's a lot more straightforward, you, you, know what, um, you know what the expectations are, where with systems you don't necessarily know what all the expectations are, unless somebody has written a really good design document covering everything. <laughs> gotcha. Well, and also, when, when you're making a system... Uh... It's easier to use like a um, unit test uh, tools and things like that. It's like, yeah, I'm expecting this, this, and that. It has to run and pass it and fail. Exactly. If I, yeah, if I wanted to fail. Which yeah, in a people game, try to uh, people try to implement unit tests. Uh, you know that mentally they think that oh yeah, we should totally unit test all of our game systems. And it's like that is hopeless, right? Like, <laughs> that's not something you do. Like you can't. You can't unit test with physics, right? Like, it's just um, I, it, I'm not I'm not trying to say that it's flat out impossible, right? People do crazy things, but yeah, I mean, in general, it's it's a uh, you know there aren't there aren't any game companies out there without massive QA 
efforts. Uh, and that's why the QA efforts exist, because unit tests just don't fly in that area. Mm-hmm. So the, what, what are the good aspects in your personal experience, good aspects of being a system developer? Is something that uh, you feel has improved in, in, in yourself as a game developer? Just because uh, you're a system developer? Yeah, well, you know, what I, what I really did was uh, essentially shifted away from, like, gameplay development. Um, you know, so it's, it's something I can do, and, and sometimes I do it. Um, but, uh, I mean, even as a, a lead programmer, um, I actually have basically a, um, a guy that's really my go-to guy for the gameplay side of things because... Um, gameplay is like, and, and Paladins is very complex. The way that uh, all the different devices and the um, different cards and the champions, right? It's uh, it's not something that uh, I can keep up with all the details of because I have to worry about the other side of thing, the system side of things, which is, you know, that was what that was my background. Um, so. Uh, it's um i wouldn't i wouldn't say that it's made me a better or worse developer right necessarily um it was it was just a choice that i made um you know back while i was at tripwire um you know they actually um they were they continually you know review uh, after review right every year we had this review and in every one of them they were telling me like oh you need to you need to specify right you need to become a, a master of something uh, whether it's physics or AI or rendering, right? Um, and my my continual answer was, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> and it's it's because I'm I'm interested in all the aspects of tech of technology and all the cross interactions of things. That's that's what uh, intrigues me um, more so than than gameplay. Um, you know, because I. I don't. I I very much lack that creative mind, right? Um, gotcha. I'm I'm very logical, and uh, I like concrete logic. Um, and you know, gameplay is a little bit more of creative logic um, at times. Um, and so, uh, it uh, it was just the path that that I started down. And nowadays, I'm like, yeah, sure, I could do gameplay, but doesn't really interest me um i'm not i'm not too concerned about the champions themselves i'm more concerned about being able to add new champions into the system and for people to be able to select them and to be able to do that and to basically allow designers to be able to do that at will um you know because we've built this like architecture that allows them to just kind of click a new button and set a few things and boom, they've got a new champion and it shows up in this screen and it's selectable and it's purchasable. And, you know, um, that stuff intrigues me more than what the champion does when you left mouse click versus right mouse click. Gotcha. Man, this is, uh, this is fun because uh, I think I'm discovering like other parts of me that I, I didn't know. Like for, for what you're saying is, I thought that, um, I mean, I like gameplay programming, but I'm like you, I, I like to make the systems and make sure that is the, the game is adaptable. And if I want to add a new 
uh, I don't know, a new scene or a new hero, or it could do it dynamically and anything is gonna break, things like that. Um, but on the other side, I think um, I would love to specialize in AI. That's something that I really like. But I don't know. I'm confused now. <laughs> well, I mean, I tried. I tried my hand while I was at Tripwire. I tried my hand at AI, um, and it became very clear to uh, to my boss, you know, as well as anybody who played against my AI, that that was not something that I could do a, 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 that I could do very well. Um, and it, you know, AI is the epitome of creative logic, right? Like in the in the realm of uh, programming. Uh, in my opinion, that that is the most creative aspect, um, and it and it takes a different mind to to really uh, be effective in that space. If you try and get too logical about the way um, the AI works, and um, it know, becomes it predictable. Responds, exactly, it becomes predictable, and yeah. um, what you know, good AIs are are emergent, right? The, versus just like oh. In this scenario, out of these 500 scenarios that I can comprehend, I do this, right? It's like, that's not the way it works, uh, you know, with, with good AI. Um, you know, we have, like, we have on Paladins, we um, we basically pulled over an AI programmer uh, who used to work with me on Jetpack Fighter, which was also a high-res project. Um, and on, high, on Jetpack Fighter, he came in and, you know, with a computer science background and was a level designer. Um, and he did a great job as a level designer. Uh, he's the reason, honestly, the reason that those levels are actually fun and interesting. You know, we built the tools that help him that helped him do that. But um, without his creativity, the it wouldn't have actually materialized. And he came in and did the AI for Paladins, having never actually done AI. Um, and you know, we have this core system that had already been built that Smite's using, a behavior tree system. So. Uh, he had to, he had to learn that, and he had done a little bit with behavior tree stuff prior to that. Um, but on Jetpack Fighter, behavior trees were basically owned by programmers, um, and so it kind of was a good fit for him, right? He's got that level design creativity, um, but then also he has that programming background, so he was he was able to quickly pick up and understand behavior trees, and our our bots have gone from predictable static. Um, you know, just uh, obvious that it was a bot. Um, and in, what, four months, five months? I mean, he's turned them into where people legitimately think that they're playing against other players. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's been incredible to watch. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just, I, my mind does not tick that way. I couldn't have made that happen. Uh, they would have still been rigid. They just would have had more functionality. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I think that's definitely the path that I'm, I'm going to take later on, specializing in AI, because I think it's because I love uh, fighting games. So yeah, I just I just want to make the final AI to beat the opponent, but also you know in AI it's difficult because you have to be uh, to have different levels of difficulty, so it's not super boring to always lose against an AI. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, um, Dale, would you like? Could you compare, like, after all these things that we mentioned of system programmers or gameplay programmers, compare both fields, gameplay programmer versus system developer? Compare them? Yeah. 
Um, in what sense do you mean to, to compare them? Um, like in what you mentioned, like creativity or like attitudes that you have to have or mindsets. Uh, yeah, so I mean, like I was saying, you, you really got to be intrigued by the different uh, the different technologies. Um, you know, it helps to have more of that that concrete, logical mind uh, versus you know having a little bit more of a designer mind or a little more you know generally that creative mind. Um, a lot of the gameplay programmers uh, that we have that that are you know just rigidly like I am a gameplay programmer and that's what I want to do. Um, they are themselves a bit of, of a designer. Um, and so, you know, granted, they work with people who are full-time designers to, to actually, um, you know, complete their job, get the, get the new champions in. Um, but they, uh, there's a lot of feedback. There's a lot of give and take. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, suggestions of how things could be improved or concern about how certain things would interact with each other. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that is that, that is that big difference, uh, to me, um, between a good gameplay programmer and a good systems programmer is just that, that creativity versus the, the solid logical foundation. Um, and in particular that for a systems engineer, having that interest in other technologies and how everything behind the scenes works versus, uh, you know, gameplay guys are often content just knowing, oh, this is the space that I work in. These are the things that I have to do to make, you know, to make the champions work and to make their cards work. Um, they're not they're not concerned about how everything works behind there. They just know what they need to do to make it work with those systems. Um, it's a it really is. It's a it's a it's a different mindset within the space of you know the generally being a programmer, being a game programmer, right? Um, it's a uh, it's interesting uh, analyzing it. I hadn't really uh hadn't really analyzed it before um, <laughs> joining the Paladins team. You know, whatever five months ago or something, where you know they before I took over, they had what, what I considered like a wall essentially, right. Where they were like, we have gameplay programmers and we have systems programmers. And when things, um, when a gameplay programmer gets to the point that they need a systems programmer to do something, they throw that task over the wall. Um, and the systems programmer do the same thing the other way. Hey, I, I gave you this new system, throw it over the wall for them to start using it. Um, and uh, we're we're breaking down that wall. Um, you know, we, everybody still has their um, still has their forte, still has their knowledge. Um, but we're we're all just programmers now on the Paladins yeah. team. Um, we really, I mean, only in the in the past couple of weeks have we really been making that shift. Um, so it's uh, it'll be interesting over the next few months to see how. Um, certain you know how the the programmers adapt to working on the other side of that wall um because you know i, I see it i see the different mentalities uh in my team um and uh you know people are they're going to end up with affinities right where it's just um no this this guy really just does champions and 
having him do systems isn't really the best thing for for systems um you know so we'll end up with a certain number that are that are really more so gameplay programmers than anything else we'll end up with uh, others that are hybrids um and uh, i honestly actually don't think we're going to end up with anybody who just does systems i think uh I think everybody's going to end up touching the the gameplay side in one way or another. Gotcha. No, I think that's a really good practice because at the end, uh, communication is key for everything. And in a team, is even more important because, I mean, you need to know how these other developers are going to be used in the system that you're creating. And the gameplay programmers need to know really how the system is working and what it's capable of so they can use it to the to its full extent yeah no absolutely and that's you know that's kind of part of the reason for the the transition is that we think that um that everybody will benefit from it you know and like i said there there'll probably be a lot of people that lean one way more so than the other um but uh but in general yeah everybody will be getting exposure that they didn't previously have that's good. So enough of system developers. Let let's talk about Paladins. Um, I mean, Paladins is a super popular game. Uh, but just in case for the our listeners that don't know about it, just tell us about Paladins. What it is, like, what do you think is fun about the game? Um. Yeah. So, uh, Paladins is a uh, free-to-play shooter. Um, that's, you know, it's got MOBA elements, right? Which, uh, you know, everybody had to see that coming from our Smite background and the popularity <laughs> and success thereof. Um, you know, our, our CEO loves Smite, um, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he loves that MOBA style, uh, of game. So, uh, it's no surprise that if, you know, we, everybody was pointing him towards, oh, we should make a shooter, we should make a shooter, and, he he certainly uh, went towards the direction of making a shooter, but he couldn't he couldn't drop that uh, that MOBA experience. Um, so you know you have uh, you have different champions, um, and they just have uh, different sets of um, abilities, and then they have uh, cards that are you know um, they're actually really per per champion, right? Each each card is really tied to. A particular champion and they're essentially modifiers of their abilities and so um the interesting aspect of that is that you know when you when you encounter um one champion you don't necessarily you know 100 percent know how you should handle them because you don't necessarily know what cards they have equipped um mm, gotcha. and it's even though they're just modifiers they're they're enough of a modifier that uh in the in the right hands, they can uh, they can play very differently, um, you know. And we have that same thing in, in that mobile world where, you know, you continue to in the middle of you know one single game session, right? Like a five v five is our standard for paladins, um, which you know, just like Smite, um, that uh, during that that play session you um, you do level up in a sense. You uh, you are you go through and get upgrades um so you are earning credits through the game while you are doing the things that you're supposed to do um whether that's capturing a point or pushing the payload um and uh you 
um, you take those credits and you're able to buy upgrades that further enhance your abilities. Um, and so that, uh, that plays into it. You know, if you're, um, if you're realizing, oh, well, you know, we need a little bit of help in this area, right? We, we need some extra damage. Uh, you know, even your support players can, can go that damage route and get that extra damage, you know, because the other team might be stacked with too many tanks and, or too many shielded guys. And so, you know, you have, you need to have that fire focus where everybody's doing that little bit of extra damage so you can fight through that shield and, and kill that player off. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting game. Um, you know, everybody, everybody says that we ripped off Overwatch. Um, you know, there's, a there's actually some interesting give and take over the time that, uh, that I've been on the project. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a complicated topic. Oh yeah. But you know, there are things that Overwatch has taken from us, right? Like the, there are things that, that we've done. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, uh, you know, we do end up like, because they've done a good job, we do end up doing things like they do. Um, but that's, uh, you know, we, we try and make our own twist on it, right? Which is, gotcha. that's that's the way we've always done things, right? That's that's my... Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's common in, in game development. Like, if you see a good idea, you or just say, okay, that's going to go into my game, but I'm going to make a twist or uh, have some like, the story is going to be different. So it's normal in game development, I think. Not in game development, in software development, I think that happens. Absolutely. There, There's the... A, there are good ways to do things and there are bad ways to do things and you know learning off the lessons of, of somebody else yeah um, I you know I think that it's smart there's there's a limit right there's a there's a point at which you're just flat ripping them off and and you know Paladins gets a lot of those accusations um, and you know it's it's not that I don't understand what they're talking about it's not that I don't see what they're getting at um, but uh, that's that's not been the reality of it. Um, you know, it's, uh, we, we always try and put our twist on things and sometimes our twist doesn't end up very good. You know, we go through and we, we put it in there and we test it out and we're like, Oh, well, yeah, that, that twist didn't really <laughs> quite work out. And so, um, you know, sometimes we'll just punt that champion off and, you know, not actually release them and, and circle back around to him, see if we have any fresh ideas on, on how we could, uh, actually get that that twist that we need so that it's um so that it is more interesting and and you get less direct comparisons to to other games they how how have these comments affected or benefited the the game itself do you feel like it has decreased the sales or in any in any way uh no i wouldn't say that it has um you know there's um I think that it does. Uh, it does limit. It, it probably has stopped a a, sol- a probably a small number of people from even giving it a chance, right? But um, you see the counter reaction in a lot of places where um, people are like, "Yeah, I, I heard all that, and then I tried it, and I I don't really thoroughly see what everybody's talking about, right? Uh, it's that's good. It's not as blatant as the some of the comments." you know make you make you believe uh it's easy to draw comparisons because they are both MOBA shooters and there aren't a whole lot of other MOBA shooters out there um so 
of course it's of course you're gonna draw comparisons um you know a shooter's a shooter a moba's a moba right like <laughs> um so um i don't, i just i shrug it off and and move on you know uh besides i'm i'm a programmer and not a creative one and so uh my you know my job is to follow the the lead from the artists and from the designers uh, i'm not i'm not the one making those decisions i'm just making things functional for those who make those decisions gotcha no i think uh, like in the end you have to uh like get over it it's like yeah people uh are going to hate what you do and comment on it and leave bad reviews good reviews it's just that yeah you have to get used to that if, when you're releasing games and stuff on the internet like people are very opinionated so they're gonna oh yeah yeah comment on your stuff yep absolutely so um Dale, would you like to share any funny story that happened to you while working on on paladins i mean you're still working on it so i am um I uh I don't know that uh, that offhand I really that I really have anything that's uh you know really uh really too anecdotal um <laughs> a lot of uh a lot more of the the fun that we have in the office uh comes from uh you know the the friendships the interactions with uh, with other people um and so there you know we have our running jokes within the studio and those kinds of things um and uh you know that's the that's the fun stuff but it's you know that's the stuff that that keeps me going and you know able to work 60 80 hours a week and not feel burnt out uh, about it because uh you know I'm surrounded by really good people um and uh you know those those interactions give me that little break and that little you know laughter in the middle of the day um and that's you know that's one of those things that uh having been outside the game industry in a number of places you you don't you don't have that same level of camaraderie uh and and regular software development um and uh you know you don't you don't have people having as much fun um yeah that's true yeah and it's just you know the you don't you don't just have bursts of laughter throughout the the studio that you know and it's it's so consistent that it's not even surprising right? you don't you don't hear people laughing and then, you know, just walk over and are like, Oh, what's, what are they laughing at? Right. Laughter is so normal there that you're just like, Oh, well, somebody, somebody's having fun with something, you know, and it's every 15 minutes, it's going to happen again at, at a different <laughs> part of the office. Uh, so no, it's, a, it's a really cool feeling. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I, I remember when I was working in a, in that, um, consulting company, I had a really good relationship with everybody. Uh, we were friends and all that, but it wasn't like that. People don't just laugh because you're not going to laugh at a website. Right. It's just, yeah, you're doing the system. That's it. That's not fun. But right. in a game development company, it's super different because I don't know. Maybe the character is doing something wrong. Now it's upside down. <laughs> it's uh, it's crazy bugs that are funny to to look at. It's yeah. It's something else. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of the other the other interesting, the real interesting side of it for me uh is that you are 
you are consistently surrounded by very talented people and what they do. Um, you know, and, you know, on the art side, like, yeah, people, you know, doing movies, right. That are, you know, creating the 3d movies and, um, doing effects and everything in that, right. Like those, those guys are also really good. Um, but in, uh, from the software side, I mean, I would, uh, having been outside of the game industry a couple of times, um, I can say that, you know, the, some of the best developers are in the game industry. Um, it's, a it's a much more difficult problem to solve generally, um, than, you know, than doing regular software development. And that's, you know, there's a lot of people that, uh, aspire to do it and, and that's why it's so hard to get into is, you know, it's kind of one of those things that not literally everybody, but, you know, a lot of people want to do it. Um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, programmers would love to work in games and, um, you know, they, they continually apply and, and, you know, try and get in at the different studios. So there's, there's lots of applications. And so, the game industry is able to pick the cream of the crop, you know, they, they kind of get the best picks out of there. And that's what makes it just that much harder to get into the game industry. Um, you know, mixed with the fact that the, the number of open positions, you know, it's probably 10% of all open, uh, you know, computer science based positions, uh, are in the game industry, right? Just throwing out a guess, but it's, it's got to be a relatively small number, right? It's got to top out at 25%, I would say. Um, and so, you know, it's, you, you mix all that together and that's, that's what's clear that it's, you know, you have to be good, you have to be dedicated and hardworking and you have to, you know, you have to love it. Um, and, exactly. uh, yeah. Um, you know, and you have to be willing to take that pay cut, right? Uh, uh-huh. That's that's not necessarily a widely known thing, but uh, but I like to to put that information out there. Generally, is that you know you if you stay outside the game industry, you'll probably consistently make twenty thirty percent more uh, than than you will in the industry. Um, but uh, you know that's that's why I say you gotta love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah man. It's the price that you have to pay. Yeah, you have the sporadic hours and on top of the lower pay, and you either love it or you stay away from it. That's that's my uh, suggestion to when I every time that I talk to budding developers. Gotcha. So that that's really good because um, then I can transition to the last question, and um, I want to say the mission statement of the debug log is. So to help people get into the game development industry, help guys finish their game because that's that's tough. Many 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 times you start a project and you're like eh, halfway when you have most of it done, but then you never finish. You say yeah, I'm going to finish later, and you never finish it. But also to help people improve their game development process, so they'll. Could you tell us about a good practice that you use in your game development process that makes you more productive or makes your job easier? Uh, yeah, so you know, I can I can um, can probably uh, point a few out. Um, so you know, one of the one of the biggest things that's hard to 
to do when you're when you're starting out, um, but needs to kind of be your goal. And eventually, uh, if you keep it as your goal, you'll you'll get there. You'll learn how to do this. But that's not so much building um, just things that work, but building architectures, building um, the foundation on which you can continue building more stuff, um, which gets back to being able to set things up to for code reuse. Um, code reuse is uh, not only uh, good for productivity, but um, it's also really good for debugging. If, uh, if instead of copying and pasting lines of code into five, ten different places, if instead you, you turn that into a function, then when you debug that function in one space, then you potentially debug that in all spaces. Um, at the same time, you can also potentially bug it in all spaces from that one spot. Um, and it, it's something that's, uh, it's, it's kind of an art. You have to, you have to be mindful of things and you have to have an understanding of how everything's interacting with this, uh, you know, this particular code. Um, but if, you know, as you practice, as you learn that and, and achieve that, um, you, you'll, uh, it'll become more natural. It'll just become the way that you do things. Um, where if you are one of the more copy-paste developers, you're always going to be a copy-paste oh, developer. Uh, that's a disaster. Don't do that, guys. Don't do that. That's bad. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah, I have I have um, to work with uh, code from other people with a bunch of copy and paste, and it's a nightmare. When, yeah. Because just to find a bug is difficult when you think you fix it, and then you say that, it, it it was copy and pasted in different places. It's like, oh man, what is this? Yeah, exactly. Um, my other big piece, my other big suggestion, and it's really hard to do this in a professional environment, but uh, indie developers should be able to, to do this more, uh, having been an uh, indie developer a number of different times uh, and actually put this into practice in one particular project. Um, it's uh, My general rule is find a bug, fix a bug. Um, so, you know, what, what I mean by that is very much you, you find something or if somebody else finds something, then, uh, you try and reproduce it and you try many times in many different ways, right? You really try to reproduce it. But once you find that reproduction, you don't stop until you fix it. Um, and the reason is, is that it goes back to that foundation thing. You are everything that you write is should be the foundation for everything that you write in the future and the more sturdy and durable that foundation is the more bug free that foundation is the more bug free all the rest of the code will be sitting on top of it um one of the most difficult things is to go back later and fix that bug and that foundation because you could very easily have things that you've developed later that are actually reliant on that bug at that point. Um, and so determining the impact of that, of that change of a core system, you know, way on down the line, you know, months or year on down the line, um, you know, you're, you're probably going to end up just patch fixing that bug in a bunch of different places because it's, it's too difficult to make the change at the core and you know watch the ramifications thereof so if you 
uh, we did that with uh, at Greater Good Games on Breakblocks. Uh, I was the only programmer, and uh, we had I had one artist uh, who's actually working on me, uh, working with me uh, on Paladins right now. Um, we uh, it was just the two of us, and so every time he reported a bug to me, both he and I would go through and try and reproduce it so that I could fix it immediately. Um, and so Break Blocks, while it's not a very good game at all, because neither of us uh, really are strong designers, um, he's a much better designer than I am, mind you, but um, <laughs> we're not game designers, uh, we found out. But uh, but that game is solid, right? As far as you know, trying to find ways to break it, um, there's, I'm sure that there are ways to break it still, but um, they are few and far between, and they are very edge case because we really. And I mean, yeah, that was something that uh, we built from scratch. Um, you know, there, there, it's not a core engine. It's it's our it's my own code that I actually started before I was even in the industry. So at this point, that was uh, what like fourteen, fifteen years ago that I wrote that code, um, and there's still. 14, 15 year old code that was in there, but every time that I found a bug, I would I would not stop until I fixed it. Um, and sometimes it took me, you know, what, like 20 hours to go through and, you know, really nail down what was the core problem with something because, you know, buffer overflows are really hard to find and things like that. Um, and, uh, but I, that was, I, I stuck with that. Um, and, uh, what what really forced me to stick with that was uh, working at Tripwire, where we kept punting bugs down the line, and uh, you know Red Orchestra Two closing out on Red Orchestra Two, like it's that uh, there's that rule I don't exactly remember what it is, but basically in the game industry people talk about something like that uh, the last ten percent takes fifty percent of the time. Oh yeah, uh, and and I think that. I think that's very dependent on how you approached that beginning 90%, right? If you if you kept punting the bugs, right? Then yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we ended up with a, a 6-month death, death march to get uh, Red Orchestra 2 into the shape that we released it in, um, which was still, you know, it wasn't awful like the 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 state of bugs and everything wasn't awful, but it it wasn't very rock solid either. Um you know, and with a six month death march you would you would think that you would actually be able to, to fix most of those things up and it's just it's that foundation problem. And uh so having learned from that when I was working on break blocks, I was like, No, we are absolutely fixing bugs as they go and uh, you know, in my opinion it's a it's a much better uh game in the sense of the technology, um, more so than the actual game. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a much more rock solid game because of that. Yeah, man. I, I love what you said because it's definitely not true, not only for, uh, bugs, but errors in general. If you have, uh, an error in your, uh, architecture, it's going to be much more expensive to fix it at the end of the game than just to fix it at the beginning when you're designing it. So... And it's the same thing with the bugs. Once you build your castle on top of, uh, on top of a bad base, uh, yeah, you have to go through much more code and it's gonna be more difficult. A lot more things are gonna depend on what you did and what is probably wrong. So 
Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dave, for, for your advices. And thank you for uh, being in the show, taking time of your Saturday. Uh, it, was, it was awesome to have you here, man. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, guys, let's take a break and um, talk to you later. All right, we have a first tonight on the show at this part in the program. We have a sponsor. That's right. Uh, we're going to start a new thing over the next few months and start putting in sponsors when people are uh, kind enough to host us because we got to pay for bandwidth. we got to pay for hosting costs and all that stuff. Zach's got to play Destiny. He's got to buy all the expansions. I'm just kidding. None of this money goes to that. But it does help us bring this show to you every week. That being said, our first sponsor is KN Air Filters. K&N automotive and motorcycle replacement air filters are designed to increase horsepower and acceleration while providing outstanding engine protection. The simple to install air filter is backed by the K&N million mile limited warranty and will be the last air filter your vehicle will ever need. Go to kninfilters.com slash podcast and get a great deal on a K&N replacement air filter with free shipping. And as a bonus, you also get a free K&N hat. So that's pretty cool. So if you need your car buff, car nut, or you need air filtered, go check that out. We want to thank ANN for sponsoring the show. Okay, I'm back. And let me tell you this. I don't know about you, but I don't like marketing at all. I think it's super boring. That's why um, we want to help you to market your game. So if you want to talk about your game or promote it, you can do so on the Debug Lounge, our video show on YouTube. You just have to go and shoot us an email at thedebuglog at gmail.com and we're going to contact you. In addition, uh, I, I also recommend you to um, subscribe to the Debug Lounge uh, Facebook uh, group. It's an awesome community where everybody is helping each other, uh, getting feedback for, for their games. It's really cool. Just go to Facebook and um, search for the Debug Lounge. Request to join and we're going to accept you. Before we finish the, the episode, I'm going to say this. If you like the Debug Lounge, if you think it's helpful, if you think it's valuable for you and you want to help us, the best way to do it is by supporting the podcast on Patreon. You just have to go to patreon.com slash thedebuglog and make a pledge. It doesn't matter how much it is, we're going to appreciate it a lot because it will help us keep the episodes coming. Again, patreon.com slash thedebuglog. And well, that's it for today, guys. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at eduardocf1989. And until the next one, stay positive and have an awesome day. See you.